Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. That place is Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. They don't stop there, though. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. It is the smartest way to hire. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free, $0, at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. That's my name. It's spelled P-E-T-E-R. You knew that. Go check it out at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm speaking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. I won't be here for long, though. We're about to go to California to Rancho Palos Verdes, site of the 2018 Code Conference, where we talked to many awesome people. It was a great event. If you missed it, I have good news for you. You're going to be able to hear it all right here and over at Kara Swisher's podcast, Recode Decode. Before we start that, though, one quick ask. Tell someone else about this show. See? Easy. Thanks. Okay, here's an interview from Code Conference, which I produce with Recode's Kara Swisher. Here's an interview I did with Randall Stevenson, CEO of AT&T. As you know, he's trying to buy Time Warner. He is going to court to try to make that happen. We talked about that at Code. Uh, last fall, these stories are kind of similar for me. Last fall, we had James Murdoch came on, and then his business is getting sold, but he still showed up. Uh, last fall, Randall Stevenson said he would come to code, uh, and then the DOJ sued him, but he's still coming on stage. We're very appreciative. Please welcome Randall Stevenson from AT&T. Quite an intro. How are you? Have a seat. Thank you. Like I said, we don't often have people come on while they're being sued by the government, so I appreciate it. I tried to get it. out of it, but you wouldn't hear no, so... I politely suggested that you should still show up. <laughs> I know you're not excited to talk about the trial, so let's start with something easy. Um, Actually, I'm excited to talk about it, I just can't. Talk yeah. about it a little bit. Let's, let's work our way into it. Um, Roseanne Barr, let's talk about that, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw Kevin Riley at TNT, I said, you may be tempted, do not go sign that one up, okay? That's the first question answered. Um, second question, if you're able to buy Time Warner, you're going to end up working with the Roseanne Bars of the world. Um, talent that is talented and popular and may make you a lot of money and may cause all kinds of headaches for you in a way that you haven't had to deal with as the guy running the phone company. You first proposed this deal, what, a year and a half ago? <laughs> yes, it's been about 18 months. So I'm sure you've had many thoughts about the deal post-announcement, but how are you thinking about dealing with a, a talent business like this where these people are going to cause you both enormous profit and, and potential real headaches? Uh, I got it. This is the issue you probably spend more mental cycles and intellectual cycles on than anything else. And, uh, and it actually, it goes both ways, but how do you protect a creative culture? And a creative culture that may or may not be flattering to, you know, the parent company or people on the other side of the equation that are part of the same ownership structure. And I think it's going to require a very disciplined managerial approach. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to be... I, I, spent a lot of time with Jeff Bukas, and he spent a lot of time kind of counseling me and educating me on this, and I, I take it to heart. And that is, uh, look, you're going to have to let these people go. I mean, you'll, you'll have some guardrails, but those guardrails are pretty wide. When you say let them go, you mean fire them or let them do what they want? <laughs> let them do what they want. Let them do what's in yeah. the best interest of the Time Warner entity. And in that, at the end of the day, 
you're acquiring a business that has been very successful. It's been run very independently. HBO is run independently from Warner Brothers, which is run independently yep. from Turner. And uh, it's been a very good model. There are gonna, some things we're going to need to do to drive value into the combined businesses as you think about advertising models and whatnot. But you're going to have to be disciplined to let these companies do what they do best. But eventually, right, you're going to have a Roseanne Barr issue if you buy Time Warner. You're going to have someone like that that creates some kind of problem, and it can bubble up to whoever is your Jeff Bucus. But eventually, I mean, are you, is it going to come up to you, or are you going to let someone below you in the org chart make that decision? It would be a very rare situation that it would bubble up to me. I mean, like Bob Iger engaging on the Roseanne Barr situation. Right. That's a, that's a no-brainer, right? You, they, he dealt with that, and he dealt with it very quickly, and you have to admire how he did it. But those are the kind of things that you can see escalating, although one must question if that needs to even go to a CEO of a Disney you know, to effectuate that decision. Would you have fired Roseanne Barr? I can't imagine how you would not. Thank you for that direct response to that question. That's nice. <laughs> we like that. Um, let's talk about the deal that you want to get done. Um, you proposed this fall of 2016. A lot of people thought it was going to be automatic. Um, since you've announced that deal, we've seen lots of moving around in the media landscape, lots of yeah. potential deals. We had James Murdoch up here yesterday talking about Disney and Fox. It seems like your deal has now triggered either lots of very specific deals or a lot of deals to be made. Did you expect that was going to happen? that once you guys said, we're buying Time Warner, that would trigger off a whole series of other things? I don't know that it triggered off all these things or if we just got in front of a lot of things that were inevitable. And, you know, look, I, you're seeing a lot of things play out that are following kind of a set, you know, kind of formula. And that is, nobody really knows what the future is going to look like five, six years from now. But I think the bet that most people are making is premium content is going to be very, very relevant five or six years from now. A lot of bandwidth is going to be required to make all of that happen. And there are going to be new kind of business models surrounding this, particularly as it relates to ad-driven type business models. And so this whole vertical integration of distribution all the way through the production of media and distribution and monetization of media, everybody's headed down the same path. And I, I would tell you, I even believe the T-Mobile Sprint deal is following the same path. I mean, people are recognizing this is gonna require an amazing amount of bandwidth to pump all of this content and media to mobile devices. Sprint and T-Mobile are saying, can we invest at a pace fast enough to stay up with this? And so I think all of this, Vodafone, Liberty uh, 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 Global in, in the UK and Comcast, what they're trying to do with, with Sky, I think all of this is following that same pattern. Seems to me that owning pipes is a great business. You have direct connection to the consumer, um, direct billing connection to the consumer, um, very high margin in a lot of cases. Media business seems kind of fraught in a lot of ways, and it seems like if you own the pipes, you don't need to own the content, because the content all has to come through you whether or not you own it, um, which is another way of me asking, I still don't understand why you did this deal. Um, you owning Time Warner, assets like HBO and Turner, all those companies still have to deal with the Comcasts and the spectrums of the world. It doesn't but strike do me that they get an advantage. That's the question. I mean, that, you're, you're hitting the third rail, right? You have all this bandwidth, you're going to need media, you're going to need premium media, but you also, one of the key variables to this is a direct relationship with the customer. And a lot of the media companies do not have that direct relationship with the customer. There are some who do and they're doing quite well. Netflix has a direct relationship with the customer. Yep. They're a fully integrated media distribution direct relationship with the customer. Amazon is doing the same thing. Bob Iger 
obviously has high ambitions to establishing a very direct relationship with the customer. So if you can bring 130 million mobile customers where you have a direct billing relationship, day-to-day -day customer relationship, bandwidth, as well as content, media and entertainment content, and put all that together, then you have vertically integrated the same way as some of these other guys have. I but think you have that direct relationship. Thing. The media stuff you're gonna integrate, right? Again, the value of HBO goes away or it's severely diminished if it's not also available to Comcast Spectrum and everybody else, this is your court case, right? So what is the advantage you get from owning it as opposed to just having an arm's length relationship like everybody else? So think about what's coming together here. Um, Turner, specifically, start there, has an amazing inventory of advertising that they just kind of sell broadly. It's not a very targeted advertising approach. AT&T, has an amazing amount of data, customer data. For 40 million pay TV subscribers in North and South America, 130 million mobile subscribers, 16 million broadband subscribers, we have really great customer insight on what kind of shows, media, content they're viewing, where they are, all kinds of information on the consumer. Can you pair a, a very formidable ad inventory with a very formidable amount of data, information on the customer, viewership data, and all kinds of other information, and can you create something unique just from a straight advertising platform and change how you're monetizing content? We actually believe there's a strong opportunity to do this. We do this at a very small scale today, and uh, it's, it, those of you all know the media world, but basically a, a, a turner every hour they have 16 minutes of advertising inventory. Two of it goes to the distributor, Comcast, AT&T, or whomever. Yep. With just our two minutes, where we use the data that I'm talking about, we monetize the advertising at three to five times what is done on just a traditional uh, TNT, uh, TBS, and so forth. Can you begin to move those numbers to look more like what we do in the direct TV content by virtue of using the data? That's a sizable but benefit. Th those two or three minutes you get from Turner, right? You also get them from ESPN and you have that same exactly advantage right. there. So again, I'm still confused about why owning one asset and then not owning the other, what advantage you're gonna get. So all of that inventory you spoke of in direct TV, roughly 200 billion impressions a year. Turner? 750 billion impressions a year. Can you make the 750 from a yield standpoint look like the 200? If you can, that's a sizable benefit. And it's a sizable benefit, not just in terms of new revenue and new margins, but can you begin to change the content equation? Can you begin to do like Kevin Riley has done at TNT and drop the advertising load? I find the traditional TV experience less than fulfilling because of the advertising load. If you can begin to drive yields up, can you take advertising loads down? And can you actually begin to change the viewer experience for some of this content? We actually believe you can. Jeff Bukas is pretty good at running a media company. We asked James Murdoch, his dad, very good at building a media company. These guys who are building these big companies are, are selling media companies, people like you. Doesn't that give you pause that, that, that you're on the wrong side of the table? I asked James the same question, backwards. <laughs> Look, it, the model has to change. I think they all recognize that. If you're gonna keep running the same play, then it's probably not a very exciting business. But if you can begin to reassemble the assets in a way that can actually allow you to change the model, can you change the advertising model? Can you change how content is distributed? Uh, 130 million mobile subscribers and you own premium content 
How can you begin to experiment and, and innovate around the content differently to distribute to 130 million mobile subscribers? We think there's some opportunities to really innovate in, in media and entertainment around that as well. Jeff Bucus would tell you the same thing. The last big deal you did was DirecTV a couple years ago, mm -hmm. 2015? 2015. And, and you said that basically at the time, like we bought a declining asset. Is the rate of decline accelerated for DirecTV in terms of the subscribers? No, actually, it's been interesting. Uh, so we got it, you know, kind of late in 15. 2016, it followed the path that we pretty much expected it would follow. 2017, it was kind of like a step shift in the pay TV market. It just kind of dropped down and did this. It's now on the same trajectory, but it just took a step down in 17 that was more than we expected. As we look over the last couple of quarters, it's back on a similar trend, but there was just a step shift. Well, well, what, 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 did that, what did that signal to you? Uh, we've asked ourselves that question a lot. Uh, we know where the traffic went and what demographic it was. It wouldn't surprise anybody in this room. Let's spell it out. It's, it's millennials. It's uh, people who tend to live in apartment complexes. You, know, you can get very specific about who the people were that did the aggressive cord cutting in 2017. It was all the people you knew who would, but there was just a step shift in that. Young people who were paying you for satellite TV stopped paying you for or satellite TV. Or cable TV, TV or, right. or whatever. Correct. And then, but, and then the satellite guys got hit, have been hit worse than the traditional cable guys, right? For a couple of quarters. Right. And yeah, this last quarter. Did you see that coming? Uh, yeah, you know what we did? So some of it, um, we said when we bought DirecTV, we were not in love with the satellite business. What we wanted was the ability to innovate in terms of delivering the content, specifically moving to over the top, getting mobile rights so we could begin distributing that content to our mobile subscribers. So you basically thought you're buying customers, not the satellite infrastructure. Customers and content relationships, right? And sure enough, we bought DirecTV, and within a year we stood up a product called DirecTV Now, purely over the top, designed for the mobile environment. Within a year, year and a half, we have a million and a half subscribers on that platform. And it's growing nicely. We had another 320 some odd thousand last quarter. And what you see is our, our pay TV business, 25 million subs, been very, very steady. And that's what you wanted, right? We're gonna replace the, the satellite customers with the, with the online customers. We were at 25 million subscribers a year and a half ago. We're at 25 million subscribers today, but a significant amount of these are in over-the-top platforms. Do you make money from the online customers or you lose money? Today, no. Standing up the advertising platform is a key element to this. And plus, uh, we really pushed hard to get this platform out there. We just put out a new uh, version of the platform just two weeks ago with the full DVR capabilities and incredible amounts of stack content and so forth. And so we're priced at a discount, we're moving that price as we roll this out to more market-based. So you get to a place where you start making money on it in the next year, year and a half. So I'm, I'm not worried about that. I, I love the idea that you're keeping a very stable, and I believe over time, a growing customer base, but it shifts. It shifts to more streamed, over-the-top capabilities and the ability to monetize advertising on those platforms is exponentially greater than the traditional linear TV platforms. So you, you, you don't know the media business, but you, so you bought a bunch of people who do, or you'd like to buy a bunch of people who do. Um, you don't really have any background in advertising. You're starting to import some people there. Yeah. As a manager, as someone who just has not touched these businesses for years, how do you think about what you have to learn, and how much you have to learn to be able to sort of accurately assess the job they're doing, or is it, you literally don't have to know any of it, you just have to listen to smart people. 
Well, I mean, at and is a big company. We have a lot of different areas that I don't know explicit details of many areas. But you're a lifer, right? I mean, what's that? You know a lot about the core at and Yeah, but it's all about the people that you hire to run these businesses. And uh, Time Warner has some amazing people that run those businesses. Plepler, who runs HBO, and Suji Hara that runs uh, Warner Brothers, and and John Martin that runs. These are like really, really good people. They they've been in this industry a long time, and they're going to be very critical to the success of this business as we go forward. On the advertising side, to your point, no, we're not advertising experts. We went out and hired Brian Lesser uh, from WPP. He has stood up digital advertising businesses, had a lot of success doing it. He has already built a significant team around himself, and uh, we have put all of the AT&T big data capability under Brian, and he is blown away by what data is available and how it's organized and ready to be put to work. And so we're building a terrific team. I feel really good about the team coming together to run this. Your, your competitors at Verizon look like they've looked at the same map as you and said, well, instead of buying TV networks, although I guess they've certainly looked at them, we're going to buy online properties and spend a bunch of money on AOL, a bunch of money on Yahoo. We're going to go at it that way. What, why do you think they're going that direction instead of going and buying the, traditional The, the media? two models are not radically different. Uh, both are centered around owning content, significant content, and then using the data from our, our distribution businesses to enhance the value of the content businesses. He just ha they're going down a path of digital content. We're going down a path of premium content. And I just, I'm a big believer in premium content. The, uh, just had Mary Meeker in here, and I was going through her report on the way in this morning. Premium content consumption is not going down. Premium content consumption is going up. And uh, advertisers, love the premium content platforms. They just want it to be more targeted and more effective. And so if you can build the capability for premium content to deliver for advertisers, very targeted and specific audiences, we actually think there's a major opportunity there. So not, the models aren't radically different. We're just going down premium content and they've chosen digital. Are you concerned at all that the consumers now are being trained by Netflix primarily, but other, other on-demand uh, offerings to expect life without commercials, and you're predicated this on better, more targeted advertising? HBO is a product that's life without commercials. Yep. They do quite well. In fact, they're growing their direct-to-consumer business very, very nicely. So I don't... But you've been talking for a while now about the benefits of improved advertising and targeted advertising. That's what's going to make this deal work. It's an element. That's one of the elements of it. Uh, taking HBO direct to the consumer business to a different level, I think, can be a very powerful opportunity as well. There are a lot of opportunities. There's an amazing IP library within Warner Brothers. How can you put that to work and create something special with the distribution business? So uh, it's, it's not a one-trick pony. It's not all advertising. HBO, I, I still believe, is one of the premium video assets in the business right now and uh, comparable to, to Netflix. And I'm anxious to kind of move the direct-to-the-consumer platform as aggressively as possible. It looks like the map of, of the media slash distribution world, we've actually got one of these, does really well on Recode.net, I'm sure you've all seen it, is going to eventually be you and Verizon, and then some combination of Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, sort of owning much of the, the media properties, which means you're going to be competing directly against the Googles and Apples and Facebooks and Amazons of the world. How are you thinking about going toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with Silicon Valley? I, I believe if you don't create a pure vertical integrated capability, vertically integrated capability from distribution all the way through content creation, and advertising models, you're going to have a hard time competing with these guys. And I, the, the, the statistic we throw out and if, uh, is since we announced this deal, 
in, in November of 2016, the FANG market caps have gone up over $1 trillion. You better figure out how to vertically integrate here if you want to compete at the, with, with those players. And so that's what this is about, is building the capability to compete in a purely vertically integrated opportunity for the consumer. What about culturally in terms of hiring, getting best of, I was going to say best of breed, that's a terrible cliche, really good engineers, other technical folks who might be inclined to go work for an Amazon or an Apple or a Netflix. How do you get them to work for an AT&T? It's hyper-competitive. But AT&T, if, if you want to work on, if you're an engineer, a software engineer, uh, look, Google, Apple, those are great opportunities, they're fun opportunities, they're great brands. Uh, if you want to go work on the first network being launched in the world that is software-driven, I mean, that's a big scale deal. This, this is something that's bigger than Amazon Cloud. This is a big, big deal. And AT&T is leading the charge, and our engineers are out front on this. If you want to work on things like that, that are, that are global in nature, that change how telecommunications is done, AT&T is a great place. If you want to work on projects that uh, change how video and premium video is going to be distributed, AT&T, we have hired a ton of people to work on our over-the-top product, DirecTV Now. We have some great people that we've hired that here pitch, in L.A. That pitch works. Yeah, absolutely. Right here in L.A., we've got a ton of them, and they're doing great work, some really creative folks. Did you see when we had John Martin on stage in February, and he complained about DirecTV? Not I did see good? that, and what, yeah. what, what, Did you talk to him about that? I can't remember the verb he used, or the adjective he used, but it wasn't... It wasn't flattering. It wasn't flattering. Yeah. Or product. No, I did not talk to John about that. But, uh, but no, we're hiring great people. The advertising platform, I told you, Brian Lester has hired, yep. made some great hires on the advertising platform. So hiring great people has not proven to be a problem. Let's tiptoe into the recent events. What was your reaction when you were actually sued by the DOJ? What was that, what was that day like for you? Well, it wasn't a day. We saw it coming. And it was obvious that uh, when uh, Mr. Del Rahim had been confirmed by the Senate that uh, we were really close to having a deal done with the DOJ, then all of a sudden those talks kind of came to a grinding halt. So we saw this coming. And so it wasn't like that day was a big wake up. Because there are a lot of folks I talked to, and I guess you talk to smarter people than I do, who said, well, he's not actually going to sue them because it's a different. Not actually what? He's not actually going to sue to stop, but he's going to. He's going to rattle a saber. He's going to try to extract some concession. He's not actually going to take this thing to court. Well, I think that was proven to be an incorrect assumption. You're <laughs> <laughs> a plain spoken person. I <laughs> but you, you saw it coming. You were not shocked when you went. Yeah, we, we expected it. We, we saw it coming. Yeah. And, and look, you, you go into a transaction like this. Um, you step into it. You hope you never have to, to litigate it, but you step into it with the expectation you may have to litigate, so you prepare. You prepare from the, from the very beginning. You know, you, you buy uh, fire insurance for your house and you hope you never have to yeah. use it, but when you do, you're glad you have it, right? And you guys know your way around Washington, you know way you're around regulatory agencies. Um, how did the Michael Cohen thing happen? How did you end up paying Michael Cohen? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, I don't have much to add other than the statement that I put out that said, what a big mistake. Um, President Trump came into office and nobody knew the guy and the staff he was putting around him, the man, and so uh, I, uh, our folks in D.C. had this guy approach them and thought, well, this would be an interesting way to maybe at least get some insight into the administration. Bad mistake. So Bad mistake because it looked bad or because you didn't get information or both? That's all of it. Just a bad mistake. I mean, what degrees do you want to get into? It was just a bad mistake. I mean, there is, like, by the way, there's a less 
awkwardly gross version of that that happens all the time, where you, whether through lawyers or varying, you know this much better than I do, where you, you do pay people for information and, and maybe it's people, maybe in the light of day it looks a little more unpleasant, but it, it's so sort of the way of doing mistakes. business. I don't know how else to say it. It was just, You're not going to do it not again. Not a very good You're not going to hire Roseanne Barr. You're not going to work with Michael Cohen <laughs> again. It's a bad mistake, Peter. Um, I've asked you about this before, but I don't think in public. You made a, a speech about Black Lives Matter, literally about the fact that you had an African-American friend, and until you had sort of talked with him, you didn't realize the sort of day-to-day -day indignity and worse that he suffers. Um, you made that in front of your employees when? 2016? Yeah, that was fall of 2016. Uh, and. It was in a, it wasn't, you weren't streaming it live on the internet, but it was, no. it was, it ended up on YouTube. It wasn't in a private forum. Um, no, it was an employee setting and it was literally a, supposed to be a family conversation, right? And, uh, you know, it's, I, it's, it's in, these things have cameras on them now. Yeah. And so, uh, literally I heard, uh, I made the little talk. It was a, I think it was 11, 12 minute. Talk. But it wasn't off the cuff. It was a speech you gave. No, it was, it was, I, it was, I'd put a lot of thought into yeah. the comments. I, I really had, I was very deliberate about what I wanted to say. And look, it was a bad time. You remember what was going on? Ferguson, Missouri was going on the situation up in Minnesota and in, uh, in Louisiana, it was in Dallas. I mean, two weeks before I gave this talk, you know, you had five police officers killed in Dallas. And, uh, and, and so we just had all of this, these activities going on and some amazing racial tension. And my view was that none of our political leaders were stepping up in a way that gave context to our people. And our, my employees were struggling with this. And I was feeling tension among my employee base. I said, I need to talk to this. And I'd had the conversation with literally one of my best friends. And, uh, and I just, he gave me some context that it was just like, wow, I was embarrassed. He told me some things that he had gone through as a kid growing up in Louisiana. The first child to go to an integrated school is an African-American in Louisiana. You can imagine what he experienced. And I, I said, man, you've just given me context. And I went and talked to my people about, look, it, I don't know where you are on this spectrum. You may think the police need to crack down, or you may say, no, these police need to be brought under control. And I said, I don't know where you are, but understand, if you're an African-American, how you view this. And I gave them that perspective, and it was received very, very well by my employee base across the, 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 the whole spectrum of our company. I left there after this little 11 minute talk. I got in the car and my smartphone was blowing up. Some, an individual had already posted it on YouTube and it, was, uh, it, was, it had gone viral rather quickly. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm actually pleased that it went viral. I think it was a, it was a good message that, that served. What, what do people outside the company tell you about that? Do you get reaction outside the company? or is it? I, I got mixed. As you can guess, I got some negative reaction. But I will tell you, it was literally 2% negative, 98% very, very positive, and even thankful to a certain degree. Have people been asking you to, to expound on that, to talk more about that? You said things were bad in the summer of 2016. They, they haven't really gotten a lot better, right? We've got Nazis marching in the street. Um, is there a reason you're not making more of those speeches? I don't, <laughs> I didn't make that speech to the general public. I made it to my employees. Huh? I still talk to my employees at length about this topic. And there are a number of activities and, and, and innovations within the company on how people are engaging in this topic. And basically what this did, it, it wasn't that profound, what I had to say. It literally was not that profound. In, 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 a, in, a, in an ideal world, it would not be profound to say that you should not discriminate against black people when they've got a historically bad experience in the United States. Um, but that is considered controversial in parts of this world. Well, I, I would tell you what it had, the effect that it had with Inside AT&T 
was it was the CEO gave every employee a license to get out and talk about this. Go talk to that individual about what they're experiencing. Go understand where they stand. And so it initiated a number of conversations, and even with my peers, other CEOs, on this topic, and it was kind of like this big, ugly issue that everybody just kind of kept under a rug and nobody wanted to really talk about it because it was awkward and it was uncomfortable and it wasn't very pleasant. All of a sudden, people are just talking about it and putting it out on the table and discussing it. That could be nothing but helpful, in my view. Let's leave it there. Well, actually, let's not leave it there. Let's ask you guys if you have questions for Randall. I'm sure you do. Um, Alex Sherman with CNBC, Randall. Uh, two quick questions for you. First one is, if Judge Leon rules you can't buy Time Warner, what's plan B? Um, I don't even want to go there. Uh, it's anything around the trial. It just the, the judge has asked us to be very cautious. And as you can imagine, that answer might have implications to how people think about the deal. So uh, I, I just right now we're focused on winning this thing. And uh, that, that's where we are. So I don't even want to go down that path. Second one is um, you were not allowed to buy T-Mobile. Sprint and T-Mobile now coming together. Do you think that deal should pass as is with no divestitures? <laughs> I, I'm not taking any public position on you know, People say, well, if he comes out and he says he supports it, that means that it must be anti-competitive because why would he want it? If he comes out and says he's against it, that means it must be pro-competitive, so we ought to let it go. Look, I, I, I think they have a tough hill to climb. I mean, it's, it's a classic horizontal merger where you're taking a competitor out of the marketplace, but it is a very different marketplace today. And uh, there are a number of competitors out there in this space and new competitors coming into it every day. So it'll probably get a different review than what our deal with T-Mobile received, but uh, you know, power to them if they get it done. Hi, um, Sid Wilson, I'm president and CEO for the Hispanic Association on a Corporate Responsibility in Washington. Let me just say real quickly that your speech was probably one of the best speeches I've ever heard a CEO give to his old employees when you gave that, uh, that oh, speech two you. years ago. So thank you. Um, my question is, what can Silicon Valley and the tech industry learn about AT&T's diversity and inclusion practices? Because it seems that we hear from Silicon Valley that we can't find qualified blacks, Latinos, women, uh, and, and other uh, underrepresented groups. But AT&T, uh, you hire people in tech, you hire people in engineering, and you seem to not have a problem with this. What is it that AT&T is doing right that Silicon Valley can learn from you? It's a priority. I mean, just like anything else, is it a priority? And do you want your employee base, your executive base, your board, do you want that to reflect the communities and the markets that you serve? I don't think you can be successful if, if you don't reflect the markets you serve. And so I'm going to work backwards up that stack I just gave you. I believe it has to start at the board level. If you don't, if you don't make it right at the board level and that your, your board doesn't reflect the composition of the market you serve, it's not going to filter its way down. So you start at the board, then you move to the executive team, and you just keep working this, and you keep looking for that talent, and you have to go compete for that talent to bring it in. But uh, until you get it at the top, until you get it right at the top, you're not going to get it right at the bottom. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, Randall. Uh, Rob Glazer, uh, good to see you. Um, on the question of sports rights, I think it's sort of an interesting thing. Uh, I'm involved with the Seattle baseball team, and we're actually partners with you, and you guys have been great partners. Uh, but you're kind of subscale in sports, I guess you would say. 
And if your merger goes through, you obviously get to be massive scale. How do you see, or much greater scale, let's say, how do you see sports right in particular, given the complexities, the fact that the leagues themselves go over the top, obviously Disney's making a, a big play with what they did with BAMTech. How important is sports going to be in the go forward, assuming for the sake of this discussion that the merger goes through, and what kind of role do you see that playing in your content work? I, I just think sports is a very important element to have in a portfolio of products that you take to market. You, you target specific audiences with sports. And as you think about where this thing goes in the future, and we are all in that video consumption is moving to the world of mobile. It is, it's going there and it's going there fast. People, I, I still remember just three or four years ago, people saying, you really think somebody is going to watch long form content on one of these devices? And people used to, yes, they do and they are. And they're doing it at scale, they're doing it a lot. And sports is one of these that it's, it's live. And live is more important and more valuable in this world than anything else. So news and sports, we think, are really, really critical to have a full, well-rounded portfolio of content that you're bringing to your customers. Do you think sports rights fees continue to climb, or do you think we've, we've tapped out as sort of the, as, as that one of the audience is falling off, people aren't paying for these big bundles and subsidizing sports if they're not watching it? I don't think you can put them all in the same basket and say sports rights in general. For example, I think the NBA is doing an amazing job. And the NBA's ratings continue to go higher and higher. And there's something about the NBA that I think is really unique. People say it's, it's very, it has a very good demographic. It does. It's a much younger demographic. But I think the thing the NBA has gotten right is you can watch an NBA playoff game in about two hours, and it's over, and it's done, all right? There's, that's very important to the new demographic, particularly millennial populations. And so I, I think the day of four- and five-hour sporting events capturing somebody's attention multiple games, multiple uh, week, weeks in the year, I, I think those days, it's gonna be harder for those models to succeed. And I think what sports in general, I hope does, is begins to, to model what the NBA has done and how do you shrink this thing down to a more bite-sized form of, of entertainment. And so I think sports is gonna be important, but I think they're all going to be changing over the next few years. Okay. John. Hi, John Ford from uh, CNBC. Hi, John. The smartphone market unit growth, particularly the premium end, has pretty much evaporated. And interestingly, Apple is now moving into services, moving into content. You guys are in services and content. What is the value today of the strategic relationship that you have with Apple versus what it was when Singular uh, became the first carrier to uh, carry the iPhone? That's a long time ago. That's 11 years ago. Yeah, man. that's a long time. Uh, and uh, man, the world has changed a lot since then. Back then, as you know, for a handful of years, it was an exclusive arrangement. And uh, today, look, the iPhone makes up the lion's share of our smartphone customer base. And, uh, and so Apple and the iPhone are a very important partner to AT&T. They, they have they just, been since- They just since accused you of colluding with Verizon, right? Who did? Apple. <laughs> no. Uh, From the DOJ, right? <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's an issue that's been out there for the whole industry globally. It's not an at That's standard partner issue. behavior. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a global issue. But, uh, uh, but anyway, the relationship is an important one to us, and it will be for a long time. They continue to innovate some great products, watches. 
iPads, and we distribute all their products throughout all of our retail and our online presences. So it's been critical for a long time, and I see it being critical as we go forward. It's are a huge part of our customer base. Of, are they becoming more of a competitor, though, at the same time with the iPhone upgrade program? Again, in content, they're a, they're a small player, especially as James Murdoch uh, lays it out, but they, they seem to be moving into areas that had traditionally been AT&T areas. I think you'd be hard-pressed, John, to identify anybody in the world of tech that you couldn't say that same thing about, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Google. Uh, you know, I, I could go through the whole Amazon. I mean, Amazon, the Echo. You know, that, is a, that has telecom capabilities in it. And so this is just the world we live in. And you're going to compete with these players at some levels and at other levels. You're going to be major vendor, supplier, and partner relationships. That's just the nature of it. That'll, that'll actually, I think that gets even more uh, pervasive over time with all the tech players. Real quick. Sure. Uh, Crawford Delper at IDC. Um, hi, Randall. Congratulations on the transformation of, of, of AT&T. As Thank we you. see things accelerate, um, can you talk a little bit about where international expansion fits in this new world um, in terms of the, the core business that you've operated in. I understand content internationally is a very different business, but for the core business, does that become a different priority when you think about how the world is becoming more connected? Yeah, I, I think about it this way. As the delivery platform for media moves from a satellite dish installed on a home to a software client downloaded by the customer on their device, that changes everything. I mean, you still have content relationships and so forth you have to enter into, but that, that begins to change everything. It changes how you think about uh, moving into the video distribution business in Mexico, where we have a rather large wireless presence that's doing very well. Download a client, do you have content you can distribute? That's really important. Now, what happens when you actually, let's say the Time Warner deal gets approved and you own all the Time Warner content? and you can begin to distribute that through these clients in these international markets, you begin to conceive differently of international than you have historically. Think about HBO and HBO, uh, the over-the-top client. There are a lot of complex relationships they have with distributors around the world, but wouldn't you like to have a direct-to-consumer relationship with the HBO content directly to the consumer? I think that can become very exciting as well. And so it opens up a lot of different opportunities for us that would have been more difficult in, uh, in the old world than it will be in the new world. Thank you. Randall, this is great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you, coming. Peter. Appreciate it. Good visiting with you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this Code Conference special interview. Before we go, one more time, if you like the show, tell someone else about it. You are smart. You know how to do that. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for zero dollars, zero cents, free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show. It's a lot of work. Thanks, Joel. Thanks to my producers, Gold Arthur and Eric Johnson, who also do a lot of work. Everyone's working very hard to bring awesome stuff to you. Thanks to you for listening. We'll be back very soon with more awesome free content. Hello, listeners of Recode Media. This is Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. My dream is that one day Peter Kafka will interview me about my success in media. And so I started a new podcast called Converge. Each week, we'll bring you fresh ideas and a sense of what it's like to build a company from the people who are actually doing it. And we'll do it all with games that no one has ever played. It's like HQ trivia if there was only one contestant and it was literally impossible to win money. So far, we've got guests lined up from Google, Lyft, Pocket, 
and that bodega near your house. You know, the one with the weird cat. The first episode drops Wednesday, May 23rd, wherever you get your podcasts. Converge, you've never heard a tech show like this.